Welcome friends to another r slash nuclear revenge video. Today we've got a great story of revenge against a cheating boss. But first, make sure to hit those like and subscribe buttons down below so you never miss any of my daily videos. That said, our story of the day is my cheating boss got a taste of his own medicine. Being a young ambitious woman in the 70s was never going to be easy, especially in the north of England. But I never expected that my first job would turn into such a palaver. Still, I've never been a shrinking violet. I'd grown up in a working class part of Newcastle during the 50s and 60s. Tough families living on a thruppence, hanging their hand-washed laundry in the streets where the kids played unsupervised. All the mams had names like Agnes, Vera, and Maureen, walked around with a cigarette in their mouths and chatted with their neighbors about what the young lass at number 28 had been doing with the lad across the street. It was that sort of life. I suppose you had to do something for entertainment when you couldn't afford a TV. They were good people, helping each other out where they could, despite having little themselves. However, I didn't want my life to be like that. I didn't want to marry a dock worker or a milkman, get married, get pregnant, and spend my life washing dirty undies in a tin bath. No, I wanted my own career, and to have all the nice things that the posh people had. So when I left school, I grabbed the paper and started scouring the job ads. Having aspirations, I decided that I didn't want to do factory or cleaning work. So I looked at one of the few other options available for a young woman starting out, secretary work. I responded to a few ads before I finally got taken on by a firm not more than 15 minutes walk away from home. When they ring back to tell me that I'd got the job, I was chuffed. I felt like a proper grown-up. I remember how nervous I was on my first day. By now, it was the 70s, so I could slip into a pair of high heels and a miniskirt without half the disapproval I would have gotten had I been a young woman 20 years prior. In my mind, I expected I'd be walking into one of the newish, tall, concrete monoliths that were in the area. A big, booming business, I thought. As I walked down the road, though, address in hand, I got to the end and couldn't find Wilson Bros. Merchants. I nosied past the bit of old fence beside me and peered into grubby tract of land inside, piles of rusting metal and, then in the middle, a grey porta cabin. My heart sank. There, plastered onto its front, Wilson Bros. Scrap Merchants. My dreams of a posh office had just climbed out of the window and bolted for Brazil. I, I'd been wet behind the ears to think I'd been jumping into a cushy job straight out of school. Ma'am always said I had an active imagination. I know I couldn't go back though. So, I slowly made my way into no man's land, traversing the uneven ground with a lot of trepidation. I definitely misjudged my choice of footwear that day, and not just because I ran the risk of breaking an ankle. When I got inside, there was a desk with a typewriter and phone, and behind that, the door to what I presumed was the boss's office. I knocked, got called in by a booming voice, and met the man in question. I've got to tell you, I was taken by him almost straight away. He was a good-looking man, middle-aged and dressed to the nines. He reminded me a bit of Sean Connery. My face must have been a picture. For a minute, I couldn't take my eyes off him. When he invited me to sit, I couldn't find my words. Even then, as young as I was, I knew that he must have picked up on it because he had a bit of a sly grin on his face. I was mortified. He introduced himself to me as Mike ran me through my jobs, and then got me set up at my desk. Over the following days, I quickly realized that this wasn't exactly a booming business. The odd few customers and clients each day, a couple of lads working the scrap, and that was it. 
Just enough work to keep us all ticking over. After a couple of weeks into the job, I begin to notice that Mike hangs around the reception more and more, chatting and joking with me. I found myself more and more taken with him, and my heart fluttered every time he smiled at me. He had this cheeky twinkle in his eye. One day, he came in and sat on the edge of the desk. He smelt of Old Spice, which, to a young lass in the 70s, made him as sophisticated as they came. He asked me if I'd like to go see The Great Gatsby with him at the ABC. A romantic film starring Robert Redford? You bet I said yes. That evening, I went home and got doled up, making an extra special effort for Mike. I was already smitten. I wasn't going to tell Ma'am about it either. No, I was just going out with a friend, I said. Jackie, that girl I went to school with. I was going to have my secret romance and to heck with what anyone else might have thought. I'd just finished reading The Female Eunuch and had begun fancying myself as a shining example of a modern woman breaking out of the domestic chains. So off I went in my new orange dress and kitten heels, catching a bus into town. When I got to the cinema, I found him waiting outside, looking debonair in his wool overcoat. When he saw me, he turned and smiled, rubbing his hands together to shake off the cold. When we got our tickets and went in, would you believe it, he led me to the back row. As it happened, the first part of the film was a relaxed and uneventful affair from an us point of view. Well, apart from dropping a piece of popcorn down my dress. When the first interval came, we both got an ice cream from the usher and settled back down. Gently, he notched up the dial by whispering a few naughty jokes here and there. At one point, an old woman in the front turned and hushed me because I couldn't hold back the giggles. After the film was over, we walked out and stood looking at one another for a moment. Then he took my hand and kissed it, telling me that he'd hoped I'd enjoyed the evening as much as him. I attempted to keep it together, but I fear I probably came away looking like a gibbering mess. I beat myself up for acting so girlishly on the bus ride home, thinking I'd made a fool of myself. I put on a brave face as I went into work the next morning, having no clue as to what to expect. As it happened, Mike came into the reception shortly after I'd settled down and sat on the chair opposite, leaning onto the desk. Smiling, he asked how I was. Well, my bottle went, didn't it? I was back to the awkward stuttering and blank mind. He outstretched his large hands and placed them over mine. I thought my heart might go bang, and said gently, How way, lass, there's no need to be shy. Take a breath and start again. Well, I did, and somehow I found myself again. I apologized for how I'd been, but he quickly assured me that I'd done nothing wrong. In fact, he told me that he'd been delighted by how mature I was for my age. A fine young lass, he called me. It was around a week or so after our first date that he invited me to dinner at a new Italian restaurant in the city center. Did I say yes? You bet. I was a 70s working class girl who'd just lived through the three-day week. I wasn't about to say no to a bit of luxury. I asked him to pick me up a few streets away from my house to avoid my ma'am seeing. After he parked up, we got out and started walking down towards the restaurant when a mustachioed fella and a Mac called out to Mike. The man's name was Jeff and he was a turf accountant, as well as a friend of Mike's. I was introduced as a secretary and when he learned that we were having dinner together, Jeff looked between us with a slightly wary gaze. At the time, I wrote it off as misgivings about the age gap. Perhaps I should have known better. The meal itself was wonderful. Lots of laughs, subtle flirtation, and the food? A million times better than beans on toast. I got to learn more about him too. Like half of the male population at the time, he liked football, beer, and skimpy negligees. 
on women that is. He was originally from South Shields, had a sister who scandalized the family by having a baby at 15, and visited his father's grave every other Sunday. I asked him why he wasn't married. He coolly answered that he'd not been in luck in love. There'd been potential candidates, but they ultimately let him down in the end. Still, he said, he remained optimistic that he'd find the one. Before winking at me, a little smile crept onto my face, regardless of whether I wanted to do it. When we'd finished, he dropped me where I started, but not before we shared our first kiss. It was my first kiss. Being the sophisticated young lass I was though, I kept a stiff upper lip and got out of the car, sending him off into the night with no more than a simple goodbye. And so began our romantic liaison. I hooked up with him for my first time in a rundown bed and bath by the sea. Mike took the concept of a dirty weekend altogether too literal by picking that grubby hovel as our base. It came suitably paired with a mad old woman who spat when she spoke and talked to herself when doing her rounds. Mike assured me that it would be a great little place, that it must have changed her hands and that he was sorry for this. I tried very, very hard to make it seem like I was okay with the setup. I think he persuaded himself that I was. Heck, I think I convinced myself that I was okay with it. I consoled myself with the fact that our room had a nice view of the sea. Not that we saw much of it, or any of the little town. It got to a point where I was lost in the moment, in conniptions, and then, then, scratching noises on the door. I jumped out of my skin until they heard meowing, and then I knew it was the mad old woman's cat. My mood for the moment was starting to wane. Then I heard footsteps and mumbling, louder and louder until it was right outside the door. Oh, you've had a tinkle on the carpet, tut tut. The cat's owner continued talking to herself outside the door. Then she went off and came back up a few minutes later, rattling as she came. Then we heard her scrubbing the carpet, loudly, right outside. Cat pee really kills the mood. After our interesting experience there, the romantic arena was largely centered back in Newcastle. In fact, I could pin most of it down to that little porta cabin. There were two things that did yet immediately occur to me at the time. A. That our relationship's romance has quickly but subtly disappeared. And B. We seemed to be going nowhere. It was just hooking up. It was great, I'll grant you, but I started longing for something a bit more substantial. I always try to pick the right time to bring it up. Usually after a dangerous but exciting round of you-know-what, we nearly got caught by one of his workers once. Somehow we'd managed to keep it discreet. I even had managed to keep my parents out of the loop. Thank God, too. My mother would have gone into conniptions if she had any clue. My father? Maybe not so much. He was more interested in his pigeons, the horses, and brown ale. It's fair to say he wasn't a very hands-on father. Every time I'd confronted Mike, he palmed me off with platitudes. I got a bit fed up in the end and told him straight, I want more romance from you. He promised me a proper holiday. No half measures this time, he said. We would fly to Spain. A foreign holiday on a plane? This was a dream for me. I squealed slightly and threw my arms around him, lost to the excitement. He laughed, telling me he had to go, but that he'd be back soon. As it happened, he never did come back that day. By early evening, I began to worry. One of his workers, Terry, a sweet and chubby lad, told me not to worry and to get off. He said that this wasn't the first time he'd done it, and that he always turned up the next day. He promised that he'd just lock up and offered me a lift home. I gracefully accepted, feeling somewhat placated but still just a touch anxious. True to his word though, Mike turned up the following morning. I asked him where he'd got to and he apologized, said a friend had called him over. 
The friend was going through a bad divorce, was depressed, couldn't leave him. Like a little fool, I swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. It wasn't until I went to a record shop to buy the latest David Essex record that I got smacked by the truth. Whilst I was there, I ran into Jeff. He asked how I was, and I told him on top of the world. He says, and Mike? I say, oh, he's fine too. We're both fine. I smiled, feeling giddy that I could refer to us as a couple, even if it was only to his friend. He gave me a knowing look. He says, ah, so you two really are... I looked at him slightly perplexed. Mike hasn't told you? Surely, I mean, you're his mate, right? Looking back, I cringe at that moment. How could I have been so eminently naive? Jeff's demeanor changed, becoming a bit flustered. Thelma's a good lass, he whispered. She doesn't deserve this. Did you know they're getting married? That she wants a bairn with him? Understandably, I was stumped. Thelma? You're not telling me that Mike is with someone else? He says, don't soft soap me, lass. I weren't born yesterday. And to make it clear, you're the someone else. With that, he stormed off. I just stood there not knowing what to think or feel. I put down the record in my hand and walked out. There was a little green space nearby with a bench, so I ambled over to it and took a seat. I'm the someone else? No, that can't be right. Me and Mike are a couple. We've been away together, had dinner together, spent time with each other. We're going on a big holiday. He's told me that he... No, that's it. He's not once said he loves me. We've never talked about the future. That's when it hit home. I was just his bit of skirt. God, I felt so sick. He'd been stringing me along, using me for his own pleasure. The deceit and disrespect wound me up to no end. I wanted to wear his balls as earrings. My first instinct was to barge into his office, first thing tomorrow, and give him a piece of my mind. By the time I got home though, the initial fury was coming down to a simmer. I decided that was too simple, so I thought about more creative ways to get back at him. Trash his office? Set fire to it? Put an ad in the lonely hearts? One cheating rat looking for quickies on an office desk must bring extra small protection. Mike Wilson of Wilson Bros. It was tempting, but I wondered if it would even get published. Probably not. My choice of plan took a few days to hit. I was chatting with ma'am about films when she brought up Love Story. That poor lass, she said. And the lad too. They'd only been married five minutes. Had me in tears by the end. Dear oh dear. My mind snapped back to the moment in the record shop. He was getting married, Jeff said. Over my dead body, I thought. My first problem was knowing when and where. It was bad enough that I had no time frame, but there were dozens of churches in Newcastle. How was I supposed to pick out the right one? I'd have to poke around. My first port of call was the ever-reliable Terry. I caught him on lunch break, trying hard to make it seem like a chance encounter, and tiptoed around the subject. Yes, he was aware that Thelma and Mike were getting married. No, he didn't know when, he just knew it was soon, within the next few weeks. It wasn't much, but it was a start. What next? It's not like I could follow him. When I got back inside the porta cabin, I glanced at the door to his office, and then almost straight away, I had an idea. I sat down on my desk and waited, pretending to work, until he passed me and went out for a loo break. I dashed into his office and over to his desk, looking for anything that could tell me what I needed to know. Lots of papers scattered across his desk, all work-related. I shuffled through the drawers, finding a bunch of keys, mints, a bottle of whiskey, and then, at last, something that might help me. His year planner. I flicked through the pages almost quicker than I could skim them. 
but it didn't take long before I found a telling page, June 29th, a date I'll never forget. Scrawled into the box was day off with a drawing of two rings underneath. Just over a month away, I started wondering how long they'd been together. Surely longer than we'd been, if you even call what we had together. As my mind started wandering though, I heard footsteps outside. I quickly closed the planner and shoved it back in its drawer, shutting it and taking a seat on the edge of his desk, letting my skirt ride up just a touch. When he came in and saw me, he initially looked surprised, but quickly his face morphed into one of lasciviousness. Rat. He tried to initiate things, so I pretended to play coy by putting my finger over his mouth and telling him he'd have to wait. He grinned. In that moment, I realized that I had my work cut out for me because I'd have to keep him at arm's length for five weeks. I managed it painfully with moderate success. I had to appease him a little once in a while every so often just to keep him from suspecting anything, but I avoided anything too far. In the meantime, I gave his office one more search. I eventually ended up going back to the planner, where at the back, I found a section for phone numbers. There was no church name listed, but I did find the number for another Wilson, an Edith Wilson. When I got a quiet moment, I gave the number a ring. An old-sounding woman answered. I introduced myself as a secretary, and she eagerly cut in, exclaiming that she was Mike's mother. She was evidently proud of him. He'd done so well, you know, built himself up from nothing. I felt sick again. I bared it, though, tactfully broaching the subject of his little boy's wedding. Thelma was a fine young woman, a classy lady. Her father was a well-regarded local artist, apparently. I said I was ringing because I wanted to check the wedding venue. I'd been put in charge of making sure the business kept ticking over in his absence. I didn't want to bother a busy man like Mr. Wilson with trivialties. Mrs. Wilson was very understanding. Of course you don't want to bother him. Of course you'll need to know where he'll be. You'll want to ring him if anything urgent comes up. I thanked her aloud for helping me, and silently for putting the final nails in her son's coffin. The end of June 1974 was sweltering. You couldn't sit for a minute without sticking to your clothes. I was never one for the summer. Gray skies and rain for me. On the remorseful day, my first task was to decide how to present myself. Part of me wanted to rock up in full makeup, heels, and the naughtiest dress I could find, just to show him what he'd be missing but then I changed my mind. This day was going to be bad enough for Thelma without me competing with her. Besides, the rat didn't deserve my best efforts. I decided to wear the formless gray dress that I wore when going to my nans, the prudish Catholic one I mentioned, with a pair of flats and no makeup. I grabbed my black clutch bag and off I went. Whilst I was on the bus, I wondered if maybe I was in the wrong. Maybe he'd be faithful once they were married. Maybe they'd have kids and a Ford Cortina and live happily ever after. Was I taking it all away? But then I thought of Margaret and Barry two doors down. She cheated on him, and then again, and again. No, why should he be any different? That poor lass is planning a life with him, seeing far into the future, whilst he can't see any further than his trousers. She deserves better, and so do I. When I got close, I peered around the church's road and saw the final few guests entering the church. She would be here soon. I was beginning to feel anxious. About five minutes, a creamy white Rolls Royce cruised towards the church, complete with ribbons. She stepped out and my jaw dropped. She was beautiful. 
older than me, late 20s or early 30s, and immaculate. I felt daft, forever thinking I could compete with her. When she went in and the doors had closed, I slinked up to them and listened. I knew that there was a moment when guests could raise objections. So I waited. Although it felt like forever, I heard the vicar say it. Speak now or forever hold your peace. I pushed the church door open without a second to spare through the entrance and into the church itself. Hundreds of eyes turned to face me, but I met only one pair, and his quickly filled with dread at the sight of me. I said, I have an objection, vicar. The bride's groom's been having a relationship with me. The church was deathly silent. The vicar didn't know where to put his face. The guests were gobsmacked, and as for Thelma, all she could do was look between him and me. It's not true, he tried to communicate softly. The echo in the church wasn't about to let his lie creep away quite so easily, though. Not that it mattered. It was clear he was lying. I knew it. She knew it. We all knew it. He'd been caught with his pants down, so to speak, and there was no way out. I saw her face contort into anger and expected her to slap him, but she exceeded my expectations by lunging at him, thumping him on the chest. She really went for him. What happened after that, I don't know. I left them to it and never heard about either of them again. Truth be told, I found the whole thing a very sorry affair in the end. As soon as I could, I left Newcastle and never looked back. I found work in a new life in London and ended up training to be a teacher. I've had a few boyfriends since Mike, some good and a couple not, did a bit of traveling with a new pal I made, and made sure I never wasted another minute more than necessary. Contrary to my younger self's expectations, I never did quite rid myself of domestic chains. I married an accountant, someone has to, and had a daughter with him. When she was four, we settled into a lovely house in Richmond where we still live. Lots of happy memories have filled this home over the years. I wouldn't leave now if you paid me. She's now all grown up and engaged herself, giving me pause for thought. The cycle of life continues. New adult lives are getting off the ground? It's quite a humbling realization. Still, I've no intention of fading into the background. You can take the girl out of Newcastle and all that. I still sometimes wonder what happened to Mike. How many more women did he use before he got old and shriveled? Did he ever get old? Part of me wishes that I hadn't done what I did, even if only for Thelma. But then I remember that, in the end, she was probably better off for it. Then, the regret just vanishes. So considering OP went and waited for the very last possible second to drop this bombshell, literally standing at the altar, right when the words, speak now or forever hold your peace are uttered, OP bursts in there and drops the bomb. Was OP in the wrong for doing it the way they did? Should OP have just tried to reach out to Thelma as soon as possible and inform them? You know, blow this up before it ever got to this point? Or do you think OP waiting and creating this huge scene and just exploding everything right at the very apex of it? A totally justifiable thing in your eyes. Let me know what you guys think in the comments down below. But with that being said, that's all the time we have for today. Now, if you want to hear another revenge story that was even crazier than this one, click on that left video. Or if you missed my latest video, click on the right. That said, I'll see you all next time with some more stories. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. 
Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at aura.com slash safety. That's A-U-R-A dot com slash safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period.